This is episode number 174 of the Fearless Presentations podcast, the fastest, easiest way to eliminate public speaking fear. Want to absolutely eliminate public speaking fear? This podcast is the answer. Here's the guy who literally wrote the book on Fearless Presentations, Doug Stanett. Welcome to the Fearless Presentations podcast. I'm Doug Stannard, CEO of the Leaders Institute, and my goal is to help you become a fearless and professional speaker and presenter. Hey, by the way, happy birthday, America. This episode is being released on July 4th, maybe July 5th. So I thought it might be fun to go back and look at some of the most famous speeches in American history and then kind of analyze them a little to, to see why they were so powerful. Uh, I mean, we're talking about speeches. They're just words, right? They're just words spoken by ordinary people, ordinary men. However, these words have caused other ordinary people to do really extraordinary things. And so when I started the, the project, I I thought I just might, you know, pick a few of the best speeches and then just kind of critique them like I do on a day-to-day basis with, with speeches. Um, however, as I, I spent... I got to the very first one, just just on the first one, the one that we're going to cover today. I spent days analyzing this this speech and just learned a tremendous number of great lessons from from just that that one speech. So I decided to make this really an ongoing series, and I think what we're going to do is do one of these for the next few national holidays. I, I, I Most likely we're going to have about five or six of these things. So I hope you enjoy this episode. If you do make sure and, and leave some comments about it, because if you like this kind of stuff, I, I would really enjoy doing more of these episodes. Um, since this is Independence Day, I, I thought I would start with the speech that really started the American Revolution. It, it was the speech that, that, that caused a group of very, very, very divided people to unite around the cause of liberty. So if you ever have to deliver a speech that is on a controversial topic and you know you want to do really well, then make sure to rely on the tips from this episode, uh, because if they work for Patrick Henry, then they're most likely going to work for you as well. Uh, by the way, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, make sure and do that. Um, you know, we're putting out new episodes every single week. And also, um, if you can leave us a review about the podcast, that helps us a lot as well. That helps us get the word out. Um, we also have a very, very popular YouTube channel that's turning out presentation tip videos every you know, a few times every week. Uh, so make sure to subscribe to that as well. Just go to YouTube and search for Fearless Presentations. You'll find it really quickly. Um, also, we've got in-person presentation classes now that are coming up in Dallas, Denver, Miami, Charlotte, Chicago, Houston, St. Louis, Tampa, Phoenix. If I didn't call your city um, or if you if you just want to avoid travel, uh, make sure and look up our virtual classes. Um, we started doing those during the pandemic and they are, they just work so fantastically well that um, that if you if you're not in one of the cities that I just called, make sure and look at the virtual classes because you can get some great value out of those. Um, you can find details about any of those things at fearlesspresentations.com. All right, so thanks a lot for tuning in to Fearless Presentation. Here's today's topic. So on the inaugural um, 
series anyway, the first the first of a series on uh, of, on speeches that kind of made America. I wanted to start with Patrick Henry's speech, the give me liberty or give me death speech that he delivered to the Virginia Convention. Um, so I, let me give you some background about this, because if you if you kind of understand the background and really what Patrick Henry was, Henry was trying to do here, it kind of sets the stage and, and helps you understand exactly why he said the things that he said the way that he did. So it started, it, this was in March of 1775, so a year before the Declaration of Independence was signed. And basically the citizens of the 13 colonies were really, really divided. There were, there were British citizens, everybody, all, everyone in the 13 colonies were British citizens, right? And many of them were really patriotic to the, the crown. However, in the five, really 10 years prior to this famous speech by Patrick Henry, the colonies were, were in turmoil. Uh, the British military had spent vast amounts of, of gold defending the colonies, especially in the French and Indian War and against um, other uh, other nations, pirates, Indians, you know, that were attacking the, the colonies. And, and really, since the French and Indian War ended in 1763, the, the British Army had, had set up forts to protect the colonies from incursions from the frontier. And King George basically decided that the colonists should be responsible for funding these military campaigns. He'd, he'd spent a ton of money protecting the colonies. And he said, hey, you know, it's time for me to kind of get something in return. So he instituted a series of ever increasing taxes on the colonists. And the, the, you know, basically when that happens, you know, it's the, the people who are upset, they're not really going to go to the king. They're not going to travel to England and complain to the king. What they would do, though, is they would complain to each other in the pubs throughout basically all of the 13 colonies. Um, and so the, the biggest thorn in the side of King George um, of, of all the colonies, though, was Massachusetts, because, you know, basically the, the Boston Massacre, what we call the Boston Massacre anyway, which was in 1770, and then the Boston Tea Party in 1773, um, they, they were a couple of the more famous incidents. But the, the, the people of Massachusetts were more united and they were more really against the, what they called the tyrannical rule of, of, um, of Great Britain than any of the other colonies at that time. Um, so a few months before Patrick Henry gave this famous speech, the First Continental Congress sent a letter of grievances to the king. You know, basically they outlined all of the different things that the colonies agreed on that the, the king was doing that they wanted to, to stop. But they were still awaiting a reply. You know, the king hadn't yet replied. And in fact, he hadn't replied in writing. But what the um, the people in the colonies had kind of realized was that since they had aired those grievances to the king, all of a sudden new ships with new troops and new, you know, naval vessels were were, were um, showing up and parking themselves in the harbor and that kind of thing. So, so just a few weeks before the speech by Patrick Henry, the, the, uh, the British military had marched on Concord to confiscate a cache of weapons from suspected rebels. You know, basically they didn't want to keep these weapons in Boston because the 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 uh, British troops were all over Boston, all over the streets of Boston. So they they were a few miles away in in um Concord, Lexington and Concord. So for the first time in really in in history, 
the British military had actually marched on British citizens in the colonies. So um, they had basically marched from Boston and decided to, to seize this cache of weapons. And so they had fired upon on um, on citizens of the of the British Empire. So the, the Second Continental Congress was meeting in Philadelphia. And um, while that was going on, the delegates were debating whether or not to join the revolution. Basically, those shots that were fired in Lexington and Concord were the first shots in, in the revolution. And it was just a few ragtag people in, in Lexington and Concord that were actually um, you know, fighting the British troops at that point. And so the rest of the colonies were trying to decide at that point whether or not they were going to join the fight. So meanwhile, in Richmond, Virginia, where Patrick Henry was, the local delegates were, were debating about which side Virginia would, would back. You know, are they going to back the, um, the rebels in, in Boston or are they going to back the, the crown? You know, would they, would they um, um, uh, you know, basically which side are they going to be on? So basically, these delegates at, at the Virginia, at, at the uh, Virginia Convention were debating both the pros and the cons of revolution. You know, some favored the British rule, others favored independence. Um, but this is that is really until a local attorney, Patrick Henry, stood up to deliver really one of the greatest American speeches of all time. Um, this in the assembly, by the way, the people that were in attendance were future presidents, George Washington, John Adams were, were in the room. And um, the, just so you know, though, the first written documentation of the full speech actually took place like 41 years later. It was by William Wirt, um, and Wirt created the text based on memories of men who were actually in the assembly. So it's hard to say how accurate the text that we have today really is. But what is a fact, though, is that after this famous speech, the Virginia delegation be, became staunch supporters of the American Revolution. So it was very, very divided. All of a sudden, after this speech, everybody was all on the same page. So along with the shot heard around the world a few weeks prior in Lexington Concord, this the, the famous line from this speech became known as really the start of the, the American Revolution. So what I want to do is just I'm, I've, um, I've got a recording of this. Um, it was actually done from a movie back in 1936. Really, really well done. And what I'm going to do is I will play some segments of it and I'm going to analyze each one of these segments. So I've broken it down into about four or five pieces to make it easier to digest. But um, in this first part, Patrick Henry begins by being agreeable with the statesman who disagreed with his stance, right? So basically up until this point, you got pros and cons back and forth. Some are one way, some are the other. And so um, it's it's really interesting how Henry starts off in a very soft way and kind of builds to a crescendo. And you'll see that in the excerpt. Chair recognizes Mr. Patrick Henry, delegate from County Hanover. No man, Mr. President, thinks more highly than I do of the patriotism as well as the abilities of the very honorable gentlemen who have addressed the House. But different men often see the same subject in different lights. And therefore, I hope I will not be thought disrespectful to those gentlemen if, entertaining as I do, opinions of a character opposite to theirs, I speak forth my sentiments freely and without reserve. This is no time for ceremony. The question before the House is one of awful moment to this country. 
For my part, I consider it as freedom or slavery, and in proportion to the magnitude of the subject, ought to be the freedom of the debate. So just to reiterate, you know, prior to Patrick Henry starting the speech, a number of really high respected, highly respected business people in, in Virginia, they'd voiced opposition to revolution. So instead of arguing with their stance and telling them how stupid they were and how idiotic, idiotic they were, Henry uses kind words to try to persuade them. Um, so the beginning of the speech is it's really quite tame, as you as you just heard. Um, uh, the, what's coming up next, though, is he's going to use a number of literary devices. These are things that we call in our classes, we call them our impact ideas. These are things that really add showmanship and they add impact to the words and, and really add an emotional drive or an emotional content to what he's saying. And so you'll see a dramatic difference in the next part of the speech. I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know of no way of judging of the future but by the past. And judging by the past, I wish to know what there has been in the conduct of the British ministry for the last 10 years to justify those hopes with which the gentlemen have been pleased to solace themselves and the house. Is it that insidious smile with which our petition has lately been received? Trust it not, sir, it will prove a snare to your feet. Suffer not yourselves to be betrayed by a kiss. So you'll notice that what Henry does in, in that part, he uses emotion to, to add persuasion to what he's saying. You know, for instance, you know, criticizing the pro-crown delegates, you know, he, he doesn't come out right, right out and criticize them. He actually uses a metaphor, right? He uses a, a, um, a literary device that, that helps them see for themselves that they're on the wrong side. So he, he said, we're apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and listen to the song of the siren. So the siren that he's talking about there, it's not the other delegates, it's the king, right? He's basically saying, you, I'm not your opponent. Your opponent is the king. The king is the person who's who's causing these problems for us. And then later he he says, I have but one lamp by which my feet are guided, you know, the lamp of experience. So basically here, Henry's showing that they've already tried to persuade the king that using words. They've already sent their 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 letter of you know grievances and all that kind of stuff. And basically experience has proved that the siren, the king is just going to tell the colonists one thing, and then he's going to send more troops and he's going to increase more taxes, you know, as a, as a penance to, to the, the, the so-called rebellion. So, and then the last thing he does, which is really cool is he reinforces the comparison again. So he's using two or three different, different metaphors or analogies in this. Um, and, and he says, um, it will prove a snare to your feet. So it actually uses two just in this one. It, it will prove a snare to your feet. So don't get caught in the trap. You know, this the you're going to hear some some fantastic words and the king is going to sound like he's being agreeable, but it's a trap. You know, you're 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 being snared. Um, suffer not yourself to be betrayed with a kiss. You know, basically what he's referring to there to there is um, is how Judas betrayed Jesus. And so, you know, Judas went to Jesus, kissed him on the cheek. That's how the that's how the, the rulers knew which person to, to kind of nab in the in the um, in the garden. So basically, he's saying the king's going to do the same way. So using a very soft approach, using metaphors and analogies and allusions and that, that kind of stuff, he is, he is 
um, using these these emotional tactics as a way to to persuade the group. Um, and then the next thing he does is really cool. It's something that that we, we kind of use a lot in the sales process. I mean, when I was doing a lot of sales training, especially back in my early days, um, one of the things that we used to teach is that the best salespeople are the ones that ask questions in order to get people to, to answer. The answers of those questions will get them to see that what you're trying to get them to understand or believe or to agree with is, is actually true. Because if people come up with the answer themselves, they're much more likely to believe it. If we tell somebody that something is true, they want to play devil's advocate. But if we ask them a question and they come up with the same conclusion that we did, now all of a sudden it's a whole lot easier. It's what's called the Socratic methods from Socrates, the Socratic method. Basically what he does is he asks a series of questions in this next part to get the people in the audience to come to the same conclusion that he did. So take a listen. Ask yourselves, how this gracious reception of our petition comports with the warlike preparations which cover our waters and darken our land. Are fleets and armies necessary to a work of love and reconciliation? Have we shown ourselves so unwilling to be reconciled that force must be called in to win back love? Let us not deceive ourselves, sir. These are the implements of war and subjection the last arguments to which kings resort. I ask the gentleman, sir, what means this martial array if its purpose be not to force us into subjection? Can gentlemen assign any other possible motive for it? Has Great Britain any enemy in this quarter of the world to call for all this accumulation of navies and armies? No, sir, she has none. They are meant for us, and they can be meant for no other. They were sent over to bind and rivet upon us those chains which the British ministry had been so long forging. And what have we to oppose them? Shall we try argument? Sir, we have been trying that for the last 10 years. Have we anything new to offer upon the subject? Nothing. So in that series, he, he in that part of the speech, he keeps asking questions that everybody in the assembly already knows the answer to. However, by getting each of them to answer the question on their own, he gets them to come to the conclusion that he has come to. Um, and it's basically what he's saying here is that, hey, we've tried a lot of stuff. And if you keep doing the same things that you keep that, that we've always done, you're going to keep getting the same results. And that's what he reinforces in the very next part. We have held the subject up to every light of which it is capable, but it has been all in vain. Shall we resort to entreaty and humble supplication? And what terms shall we find which have not already been exhausted? Let us not, I beseech you, sir, deceive ourselves longer. We have done everything that could be done to avert the storm that is now coming on. We have petitioned, we have remonstrated, we have supplicated, and we have prostrated ourselves before the throne and implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry and parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. Our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded. And we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the court. In vain after these things may we indulge the vain hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges 
for which we have so long been contending, if we mean not to basely abandon that noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest has been obtained, we must fight. I repeat it, sir. We must fight. An appeal to arms and the God of hosts is all that is left to us. So basically, after you spend some time on the emotional plea, using the metaphors and using the literary devices, he now uses logic. Logic, you know. So, so first he asks questions, obviously, uh, just like we talked about before. Socratic method. He's getting them to answer those questions on his own. But next, now he shows that what the other side has proposed, the other statesmen that are in that that room. The things that they have proposed are just the same thing that the group has already tried over and over again and failed at every single time in the past. So suddenly, Patrick Henry is is kind of telling the group that if the the pro-crown delegates, the people who are saying, hey, we just need to to not do anything, if they're wrong, basically the colonies are going to lose their best chance at freedom. They've got an opportunity at this point, and they're going to continue to get weaker as the crown gets stronger and starts to rein in and send more troops and that kind of thing. And that's really what he he kind of finishes up on in this last part. They tell us, sir, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when will we be stronger? Will it be the next week or the next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard is stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength? by irresolution and inaction? Shall we learn the means of effectual resistance by lying supinely on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope? Sir, we are not weak if we make use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess is invincible to any force our army can send against us. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations who will raise up our friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the brave alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. So this is this basically what he's just done is a very subtle criticism. You know, up until this point, he hasn't outright criticized anybody that's disagreed with him. He's tried to be very agreeable and persuasive. Um, but in, in this way, it's it's a subtle criticism for the, the people who are pro-crown, the people who are who are who are willing to to give the king, you know, not, not rebel against the king anyway. So basically what he's saying is that. He's just asking him a question in, in, a, in a roundabout way. He's saying, hey, what if you're wrong? <laughs> right? If you know, if if you're wrong, then next year the resistance is going to be even weaker and you're now you will now miss the opportunity. So basically, he's kind of telling them that that um, that, you know, hey, they have the right to their opinion. But, you know, if they happen to fall on the wrong side, if they happen to be wrong, it's going to be a, a, a fantastically missed opportunity for the the folks to for them to get the freedom that they really want um and then this very very last part this is what the speech is most known for this is one you want to listen very closely to because he concludes with another emotional appeal so basically he's kind of flipped back and forth he went he started out being uh, very soft and and um 
uh, amiable to the the people who to everybody that was listening. He he brought in some emotion because he knows that people make decisions emotionally. He he backed it up with logic. So it, he, he had the emotional side, but then he backed it up with logic. And now he's going back to emotion one more time. This is what he wants to end on. He wants to end on the energy and the enthusiasm and getting people riled up. And 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 that's really what happens in this last part. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the cracks of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it the gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. So Patrick Henry realizes that a decision to go to war will be based more on emotion than logic. You know, it's it's got to be there's got to be an emotional point. It's got to make logical sense. But the emotional pull is what's going to cause people to take action. So he, so after he makes the logical appeal to the delegates, he concludes with another emotional argument. He uses an analogy, basically saying, hey, there is no retreat, but in submission and slavery, our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. And so basically he's saying that, that no matter what you decide today, Every person in that room is already a slave to the crown. And he's using a, a, an, another metaphor, another analogy to explain that. So basically, what, what they decide next, though, has the potential to break those change, chains. So, so, it's, it, it, so basically, by the time he gets to that really emotional crescendo at the end, give me liberty or give me death, it's basically he's He's built that up in emotion and energy and enthusiasm. And then with that really cool catchphrase right at the end, you know, he, he basically at the end of his, his speech, he had people that were, all, were in the beginning who disagreed with him, agreeing with him and everybody on the, on the same page. So fantastic speech, fantastic way to kind of motivate and inspire people and to change behavior and change attitude. So you can learn just by studying what, what um, Henry did in that four minutes or so, you can learn a lot about how to persuade people and how to win people to your way of thinking. So I really hope you enjoyed the analysis, uh, the analysis as I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed kind of creating this episode. I really had a lot of fun doing this. Uh, I also look forward to doing more of these on future holidays. So next time there's a, a bank holiday coming up, uh, make sure and kind of look for, for, for the next episode of this, of this series. Um, and everybody have a fantastic Independence Day, and we'll see you next week on the Fearless Presentations podcast. Subscribe. 
Subscribe to this podcast for new public speaking secrets each week.